The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Thank you, Elise. Let me pray again for us. But we are desperate, Lord, for your touch. Come now, Holy Spirit. Speak to us through the word. Lord, help us to see what you are doing. See your purposes. Lord, help us to get the bigger picture and the the greater redemption story so that we could connect our story to the big story. Pray that you give purpose to our lives. We pray we'd not lose heart in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's consider Psalm 126. Restore our fortunes. It's a psalm of ascents. When the people were on pilgrimage, they would sing these psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, the psalm of ascents. This is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, I hope that you're reading the Psalms. The Psalms are always important, but particularly in seasons of hardship. The Psalms are the manual for how to pray. And the church has been using this manual, the the playbook of how to pray, so to speak, for thousands of years. I'm really thankful for Howard Quatch's idea of the noonday prayers, that we would come together each noonday with using the Book of Common Prayer, and we've been getting on Zoom, and we have going through uh, certain prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. Well, one of the Psalms that we've been praying almost daily for a month now is Psalm 126. And as you start to pray this, you could, get, you could easily think to yourself, this is boring. We're doing the same thing over and over again. Why are we doing this? Well, the point of doing it over and over and over again is to sink these truths down deep into our souls so that it would so get into our spiritual memory that it would focus itself and work itself out into our lives. We do this thing in different sports. We do this all the time. We call it muscle memory. And muscle memory is you do certain drills over and over and over again to the point where it's instinct. If you're a pitcher and you throw the pitch and the ball is hit over and over again to the left of you, you're instantly running to first base. It becomes so instinctual because you know that you've got to cover first base on anything hit to the left of you. Every, when I used to play baseball, 
there are certain things. I mean, I haven't played in 35 years, but if I'm running towards first, I know to round that bag and always catch it at the inside corner with the left foot so that you can power towards second base. And we would do that drill every day at the end of practice. We'd run the bases, run the bases, and then we'd practice stealing and doing the rip with the left arm whenever you're stealing so you get the most momentum going into second base. And when you dive back towards the bag, you always go in with the right, the right hand. Always go in with your head looking for the error so you're ready to go to second. Those things are just drilled into you. It's called muscle memory. You do them so much so that when it's game time and you actually get a hit, you don't have to think about, well, how am I going to touch the base? Or how am I going to steal? Because you've been doing this so much that the muscle memory just kicks in and you just naturally do those things. Well, is that how we look at the Psalms? The Psalms, we should be reading them so regularly that we know where to go. So that when the hard times come, if we have a cold, we know we need to take certain medicines. If we have allergies, we take other medicines. If we have swelling, we take ibuprofen. Well, if you're afraid, do you know where to go in the Psalms? When you're depressed and discouraged, when hard times come, do you know where to go? I hope that the only two Psalms you'd, you know are a lot more than Psalm 23 and Psalm 51. You see, the point of these next three weeks of just looking at some Psalms is to help us get to know the tools in our toolbox so we know how to use them in the midst of hard times. Today we're looking at praying through our tears. You see that this Psalm is talking about sowing in tears and going out weeping. And yet in the midst of it, three times we have shouts of joy. It begins with shouts of joy, and it ends with shouts of joy. And the idea is this, is that the past good times are being remembered in the first three verses. We remember when the Lord restored our fortunes, and we're not told what exactly that was, whether it was when they came back from Babylon, and they're rejoicing that they've come back to their country or when they rebuilt the temple and they dedicated the temple. We're not exactly sure what the restoring was, but we know that it was so good that we were like those who dream and we were filled with laughter and our tongue was shouts of joy. This was great times. And this isn't just nostalgia. This is looking back and thinking, man, those were, those were so great of the time great times that even the nations were, were proclaiming. Even the nations were evangelizing. The nations were saying, the Lord has done great things for them. They could look and see and look at Israel and say, wow, God has blessed them. And then they would affirm it. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So the first three verses are, are remembering past good times, and that's a, that's a good thing to remember as long as we're not stuck in the rearview mirror. But the present times, the hard times, is verse four. And the prayer that I want us to learn and just re to remember is restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. The Negev is this desert. There is no water. It is barren. It's not a great place to be. But when the, when the storm comes, 
and the waters come down and the streams come flowing through and there's nourishment and there is life and that's what the people of God are longing for in the present. Restore our fortunes and then we have the future promise of the best of times are ahead of us. That though we sow in tears in this life, we shall reap with shouts of joy. We go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, but we shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's the picture of a harvest and the celebration. And that happens both partially now were times where God breaks in in this life, just as he did in Acts 3, when he, when he caused this man who was lame to walk again, and yet we're also told about the ultimate restoration where all things are restored, because even that lame man still ended up dying. But he was healed. And so we have to know and remember that we begin, all of us began the same way. Did you know that? We all began life the same way. We all began life with a protest, with a wailing scream or crying. We all began life to cry is human. I'm getting this from Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. We all begin life with a protest. <laughs> I don't like it here. <laughs> and this all before us is this idea of this lament and, and tears and weeping and uh, I do think it's interesting. I've seen this verse, Psalm 126.3, used at a wedding before. We're on the, on the front of the bulletin, you know. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. I've never seen that at a funeral. Never seen 126.3. You know, you see 126.3 like, you know, when you walk into the Christian bookstore with all the Jesus junk in the front, you know, and you'll see a little tag of different verses. That would be one of them. And, and there's a place for that. There are good times and there are hard times. Well, we are longing in this life. We're, we're in the midst of the present where we want the Lord to restore marriages. Lord, restore for those who've miscarried, those who can't have children and are in great grief, for those who have chronic unemployment, those who've lost their jobs. Restore our church, restore our fellowship. Restore the singing when we come and get together. I miss the big hugs from Phil and Susie Fleming. You know, I, I miss the big smile of Juanita Rosser every Sunday. There are things that I miss, and I miss coming to the table and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good in communion. Restore our fortunes, O oh Lord. You see, this psalm is a community lament psalm, and some of the psalms our community lament psalms. And they're really good for us to pray because even when times are good for us, it's good for us to identify with other people's plight. That's very healthy. And sometimes we that have lots of privilege and have grown up and, and where we've had lots of things, we don't understand a lot of the laments. But a third of the psalms are laments and about half of them have a lament in them. And they don't have the final word though. The last part of the psalms the last five is the triumph. But the middle of the Psalms, most of them are laments. And laments are helpful because they keep us from on the road. We've got two ditches. The ditch of despair over here, where everything is just, there's no hope. Or the denial over here, 
the other ditch, where we make light of things. And without laments, the church suffers for a lack of, of poetry, a lack of theology to articulate pain and to pray our sorrows back to God. Laments give us the conduit to wrestle through grief and tears and pain. You can't microwave this. You can't speed up this process. I think too often our prayers are, are polite prayers. We pray what we think God wants us to hear. We pray what we, th- we think other people want us to pray. And we're playing like the notes of prayer, but there really isn't any original score that's being written or, or original music that's being sung. We're all living in, in post-Genesis 3. You know, where are we? Well, we're in post-Genesis 3. This is, you know, it's way before post-9-11. But post-Genesis 3 is a lot of groaning. Walter Brueggemann says, laments are refusals to settle for the way things are. They are acts of relentless hope that, that believes no situation falls out of Yahweh's capacity for transformation. You see, we need these. And many of the laments cry out two things. How long? How long, O Lord? And why, O Lord? I encourage you to read the laments. Let me just encourage you as as some homework today. Read Psalm 13 and Psalm 77. Those are two classic laments. Psalm 13, Psalm 17. And then you've got entire books of the Bible that are laments. The book of Habakkuk begins with a how long, and it's a lament, but it ends with a triumph. And most laments end, there's a movement. And the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations in the, in the Greek, the Septuagint, it's, it really is titled Wailings. The Wailings of God's People. Well, sometimes we need the Wailings. Book of Lamentation. We need them. <clears throat> Even Elton John was on to something with his song, Sad Songs, say so much. He, he, one of the lyrics is, if someone else is suffering enough, oh, to write it down, when every single word makes sense, then it's easier to have those songs around. The kick inside is in line that finally gets to you. You see, sad songs say so much. Well, in borrowing from Kelly Capick, who's a Bible professor at Covenant College, he's written a, a book called Embodied Hope, He has four quadrants, and uh, I want to show you these four quadrants. I have a little help here from our our hidden person here. (laughs) Thank you, Gene. Actually, Elise drew this up. I want you guys at home, if you have a piece of paper or your bulletin, would you write out those quadrants? I think this is a really helpful grid, and that's kind of the outline to our message. So if you think of of a grid, and you've got over here, you've got hope, is going up and lament is going this. So you got the vertical line and the horizontal line, okay? And so what you have, if, if you have lots of hope, but no lament, lament going that way, you know, you've got these different quadrants, okay? Only one of the quadrants is a good quadrant to live in. I hope you can figure out which one that is, okay? Because we're gonna talk about that. So, um, you know, if you think about it, you've got, you've got the upper left uh, quadrant, which is hope and no lament. That's kind of the naive optimism. 
In the lower left, you have no hope and no lament, just detached stoicism. And in the lower right, you have lament with no hope. That's just unrelenting despair. And in the upper right, you have hope and lament. You have biblical suffering, yet with hope mixed in. So let's start with lament with no hope, okay? So um, lament with no hope. Start there. And so that could be summed up in the bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker that says, life is hard, then you die. Nice. There's a lament there, but there's absolutely no hope. Life is hard, then you die. I mean, even Elton John in the sad songs was when all hope is gone. Well, we we wouldn't go there. We wouldn't say all hope is gone. But as a kid, many of you sang the song, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy, we all fall down. You know, you sing that and you realize, wait a minute, you learn later in high school or something that the origin of the song was during the great plague. And the rosy was the rash that was the symptom of the great plague. And the ring around the rosy means you've got the plague. And so now you've got a pocket full of posy that was to put the smell of the posy of herbs on you to ward off the smell of the disease, but we all fall down, okay? That is what you would call lament, no hope, not good. Well, this song is a lament with hope. It begins with shouts of joy and remembering and ends twice with shouts of joy. We are gonna shout, even Presbyterians are gonna shout when we get to glory. I remember one time, walking with with Matt Roberts and we would walk and pray and one time I was just going on and on about my problems or whining about stuff about the church or something and he just said would you like some cheese with your wine and uh and it was kind of his way to get me to see you know we laughed because we realized wait a minute your lament is not hopeless well that's what this psalm here in the midst of it there still is hope Let's look at the next quadrant. The next quadrant is no hope, no lament, okay? No hope, no lament. I, I kind of call this kind of the Bill Belichick approach. He's the coach for the Patriots, and of course they always win, but, but if you watch him, you would never think they've won anything because people make fun of his interviews. They'll actually redo them and you know, put memes to them because he never shows any emotion And his interviews are so boring and unhuman-like that he sounds like a computer with no inflection, just subtle disgust to have to field your stupid questions that you're asking me. And so when someone is detached from their emotions and they don't know how to grieve, it's actually quite alarming, isn't it? It's like the person who coldly and calculatedly would say, I don't get mad, I just get even. If you ever hear that, that sends chills of alarm bells that this person has the immediate potential to do great harm. You need to get help for this person. Well, when terrible things happen to us and we should truly be rocked, tears are necessary, tears are normal. When someone isn't showing emotion and telling you everything's fine, 
after something terrible has happened, like the death of a loved one, you know that's going to manifest itself later. Your body does keep the score. Tim Keller, in his book on on death, he's got this little book that he's written recently. He tells a story about a a seven-year-old boy who lost his three-year-old cousin. And the parents, who weren't Christians, they tried to comfort him. And so they were telling him, they sat him down, they said, you realize death is perfectly normal. When you die, your body goes down to the earth and it enriches the earth and other things grow. Remember, you watch The Lion King. And the seven-year-old wasn't buying. And he wasn't falling for no hope and no lament. The seven-year-old ran out of the room screaming, I don't want him to be fertilizer. You see, he got it. He got it better than many of us. We know deep down we were meant for so much more than fertilizer. God has breathed life into us, and we are image bearers of God. And death is so unnatural as we were built for glory, we were made to last. Jen Pollock Michael, her book, Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of an and in an either-or world. I really like her, her books. She, her last 50 pages is about laments. And she's been through some hard things herself. By the time she was in her early 20s, she'd lost a brother to suicide and her dad unexpectedly. And so she says, death is trouble of the most long-standing kind. And what lament teaches me, at the very least, is that it is not equanimity that I, need to, that I need in the face of death, but outrage. Because in some real way, we've been cheated by death, dealt the worst of hands by our cursed mortality. Death is a thief and it must be reckoned with. I love the last paragraph of her book. When she concludes the section on lament, she said, maybe the mystery of suffering isn't only that the world could be so fragile Maybe it's also that God could be so close, bending his ear to the earth to let every grieving heart crawl inside and find rest. Not answers, but comfort. Not certainty, but trust. And perhaps that's enough to tide us over till the dawning of a new world when the heavy boots of death are sent straight to hell and everything fragile is made unbreakable again. When falling becomes rising and faith becomes sight, a world where wonder is finally made worship. You see, we must lament, but we must lament with hope. And this next one is hope. This next category is hope and no lament. Probably the most dangerous position for Christians. This is just a naive optimism, and sometimes Christians fall into this trap We throw out little verses like, well, we don't grieve like the world grieves, and, you know, we have hope. And we're avoiding the the, the ditch of of despair, but I think we're not avoiding the ditch of denial because there's a bit of a denial in that. You know, people say, we just need to turn your eyes on to Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's truth in that, and there's a time for that. But sometimes I think we're too quick to go there so that things are becoming strangely dim and we're not dealing with reality. 
We're not dealing with the pain and the sorrow and the hurt. Instead, we offer Bible-riddled cliches like God is good all the time and all the time God is good or he works all things for good. And it's like a lot of the Jesus junk that you would see in the front of the Christian bookstore. Stuff that would really kind of frustrate me because I didn't think it was had the fullness to it. Very trite. I remember vividly some of the stupid counseling, stupidest counseling advice that I ever gave. I was all excited about Jesus in college and there was a lot of zeal, not a whole lot of wisdom. And the goalie on our soccer team was home on break and he'd had some type of dental procedure. I think he was having his wisdom teeth removed and something catastrophic happened during this um, procedure and he had a stroke. And so here the goalie from the soccer teams had a stroke. He's out for a semester, has to relearn a lot of uh, physical functions again and, you know, motor muscle memory stuff, has to retrain himself. He comes back to school. Now he's not able to play soccer. And I sat down with him at lunch or dinner. And here he is reeling from all the stuff that's happened. And I in my stupid zeal, jumped all over, uh, completely over the pain of his life and said, well, do you see now how God is using this for good in your life? He wasn't ready for that. He was still in the valley of dis- deep disappointment. It may have been true, but I was in the ditch of denial. wasn't even coming alongside of him in his pain. I was minimizing it and excusing it with a fl- flippant Christian tagline and was all about hope with no lament and wasn't grieving with him. Aren't you glad that Jesus in John 11 shows us what humanity is really like in its fullness? When Mary sees him and Martha see him, they say the same thing. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And the crowd said the same thing three times in the chapter. If he'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And when Jesus heard all this and heard all the wailing and the crying, what did he do? Jesus wept. But then he did something about it, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. You see, he had lament. And one of the cheesiest Christian movies ever made, and there's been a few, but God's not dead. I could only stomach the first one, but you have this, this atheist professor who is basically bullying the students that God is dead. And one of the students who's a Christian stands up to him and engages him with intellectual arguments, and that's kind of the thrust of the movie. But the atheist professor at the end of the movie, he pulls out a letter from his mother who had died young and was a Christian. And she, he reads the letter and he decides that he needs to turn back to God, that he needs to go back to church. But, but that, of course, in the movie is a Newsboys conf- concert. Newsboys is God and the church. You know, you just got to get, if I can get to the Newsboys concert, I'm good. And so he's off to the Newsboys concert, but it's raining. And so he's crossing the street in the middle of the rain and bam, he gets trucked by a car flies over top the car and he's laying there on the ground but it's okay two Christians run up to him and they say his ribs are broken his lungs are filling up with blood 
but they tell him, you don't have much time. But he tell him, it's a mercy that this has happened to you because you're getting a second chance for you to get right with God. And so they, they begin to ask him, you know, do you believe in Jesus? Do will you trust in Jesus? Will you receive him? And, and he decides right as he's dying that yes, I believe. And then right after that happens is the newsboys are singing, God's not dead, he's alive. And he's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. And meanwhile, the professor is dead on the street. But the guy who saved his soul literally is rejoicing that he came to Jesus. So the two Christians who come upon this dying professor at the end of the movie, I'm not making this up, the professor's dead, and the one Christian says with a huge smile on his face, what happened here tonight is a cause for celebration. Pain, yes, for just a few moments, but now think about the joys of heaven. What's wrong with that? There is no lament over a life that has just been lost that is shockingly bad. Is it any wonder that Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 13%? Well, Rotten Tomatoes is always hard on Christian movies. Well, maybe it's because many Christian movies are so bad. Here's a question for you. When the Bible speaks of restoration and we pray, restore our fortunes, what is the restoration in context? Because it occurs a bunch. Is it the ultimate restoration of the new heavens and the new earth or the restoration of temporal things in this life. What do you think the Bible speaks of more when it refers to restoration? Well, if you have a copy of the bulletin or you read the meditation or reflection quotes, let's let the Bible answer that question. You see, the question I put at the very beginning of the reflection quotes was what do all these verses have in common? And the answer is two things, or two things. One is they all speak of restoration, but it's also typically the very end of the book. Several books of the Bible end with a note of restoration. So let's let the Bible answer the question. In the book of Ruth, we have the story of Naomi. And Naomi now wants to be called Mara as her life is no longer pleasant. It's no longer Naomi, what Naomi means pleasant. But my life is now bitter, it's Mara. Her husband has died, her two sons have died, and all hope seems lost. So when she comes back to Bethlehem, she says to the community, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. But wait, Ruth is with you. You're not so empty. And Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and he marries Ruth, redeems her property, and redeems her, and they have a son whose name is Obed, servant of Jehovah, and we're told that Obed, at the end of the book, says he, Obed, shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So was this restoration ultimate or temporary? It's actually more on the temporary. So we should long for those kind of temporary things and not jump over those and pray for those kind of restoring our fortunes for Naomi's. How about the end of Job? 
Job's lost 10 children. 10. Seven sons, three daughters, and yet we're told in Job 42.10 that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friend, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And he ends up with 10 more children, seven sons and three daughters, and lots more animals. The animals double. But once again, the restoration is temporal, not the ultimate restoration of the new heavens and new earth. The restoring of fortunes was his health and blessing him again with children. So yes, that's the kind of restoration we should pray for. We should pray for both. How about Jeremiah? The book of Jeremiah, so much of Jeremiah is wrestling with, Jeremiah is telling the people, an enemy is coming from the north, they are gonna take you and they're gonna take you into captivity. And it's gonna be really bad. But the other prophets were saying, that's not going to happen. They were proclaiming peace, peace, when there was no peace. And Jeremiah is preparing the people for captivity, but he's also preparing them that after 70 years, the Lord is going to restore you back to the land, back from captivity. And so Jeremiah 50, 50, 18 and 19, the end of the story is, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punish the king of Assyria, I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan and his desires shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. You're gonna walk those very hills that you used to walk. You're gonna go back to the very land of which you were taken out of. And that's a restoring of fortunes. And Lamentations is in the midst of when the Babylon, Babylonian boots have come and they have destroyed and pillaged and burned their city and their temple and there's utter devastation and hunger. And Lamentations ends with this cry, this lament, but the lament ends with restore us, O God, that we may be restored, renew our days as, as of old. We want our city back. We want our temple back. We want our land back. And once again, this is a temporal thing that they're praying for. But interestingly, as they're longing for the temporal, as we look back at those stories of the Old Testament, we see through them that they are pointing to the ultimate restoration. When, when God's people get delivered out of Egypt, we now see that as, as now we're on our uh, on our road to the promised land. And when we see the people coming back from exile, we say, we are in exile now in the New Testament ideas, First Peter talks about. But glory is coming and we're looking forward to glory when all is restored as we look through those stories. And so a lot of the stories of the Bible are starting over again. They're asking God to restore in the midst of when Nehemiah tries to rebuild the walls and, and Ezra's bringing things back uh, when, when, it, when they come back from Babylon. God is restoring. And yet in each of those books, there is trouble. There is struggle with enemies. And there's a longing for God to restore in the midst of that. And that's what we see today is that we are in the midst of God restoring and yet we still have lots of enemies, lots of difficulties. And so we're praying for God to restore our fortunes. But we know that in this life, as we sow, as we do kingdom business, we will sow in tears. 
there's going to be a lot of weeping. Jesus was the man of sorrows. The reason he was the man of sorrows is because he was the one who was fully human. He understood our plight in every way, and he was doing spiritual battle. Some Christians, their theology is all cross. And some people, it's all resurrection. Well, if it's just all cross, and it's all morbid and sad, well, that wouldn't be good if you didn't have the triumph of the resurrection. But if it was all resurrection and victorious living, and you know what, I've heard people say to me, I don't even like a Good Friday service or a Monday, Thursday service. I mean, people throng, they, they come in groves to the Easter service, but people don't really come out in big numbers for a Good Friday service or a Tenebrae service for the three hours of mourning while Christ was on the cross. How come those aren't so well attended? Because people love the, the victory, but how about the, the hardship you see, we're called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He wanted both. We should long for both. I was reminded this week in reading in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism, these two questions, as it, as it goes through the Apostles' Creed, and it says, why is there added he descended into hell? Have you ever read the Heidelberg Catechism answer to that? Let this be of comfort to you. Here's the answer. Why is there added he descended into hell? Answer, in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured through all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So no matter how bad things are in this life, if you believe Jesus suffered your hell for you on the cross, this is the worst life that you will ever know. Your best life is to come. You see, we long for, for all of these temporary restorations in this life. Marriage is to be restored for people that can't have children to have children and those that want to adopt and haven't been able to adopt are able to adopt and, and those that can't find a home and can't purchase a home are finally able to purchase a home and those that can't find a job and longing for a job, they finally get a job. Those are all things that we rejoice in, do we not? But at the, at the end reality is for all of us, all of those temporary restorations will ultimately be taken from us. And we have to have a permanent, ultimate restoration. And thankfully, the Bible has that for us. Next question from the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Answer, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. That's the big one. So that he could make a share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. And so the end of 1 Peter, which is another book that ends on the restoration note, which we looked at Friday in our Bible study, is after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is going to make 
all things new. There is this wonderful restoration that's coming. And this restoration is not just us. It's the creation. The creation is groaning. We are groaning. We will be redeemed. The creation will be redeemed. All things will be redeemed. Even heaven and earth become one. That's our great hope of what we look forward to. But in the now, we cry out, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Let's pray. Lord God, restore our fortunes. Help us, O God, to wait upon you in the hardships of this life, longing for your kingdom to break in in its fullness, that we would love you as those love you in heaven. Lord, we long to be people that no longer struggle with sin, that we would no longer have sorrow and there'd be no more death. Lord, we look forward to those days. But Lord, you have us here and it's for your purposes, Lord, that we would magnify you and be a blessing to others. So help us to glorify you and to do good to others. We do ask in Jesus' name, amen.